Hey, welcome to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. Uh, we had the wonderful uh, recording with Sarah Century last time, all about Vera Cantor. Uh, I don't think today's episode will be that long, although I like this character. Uh, he pales in comparison to our god queen, Vera. <laughs> but I'm thrilled to be joined by uh, my friend, uh, Seth Martell. Hi, Seth. How are you? Hey, Chad. How you doing? I'm so good, man. It's uh, we had a great weekend here. It's cooling down a little bit. Like, uh, school is gonna start soon, which means I'll have free time during the day again. <laughs> It'll be a good change. Uh, how are things in New York? Great, hot, very hot. You'll see very soon. So Seth and I initially met because I noticed uh, his art on on uh, Twitter. And uh, I commissioned a piece uh, on Mastermind from him. And we've ended up becoming pretty good friends over the last few months. Uh, Seth's, Seth's come back on the podcast a few times. Uh, he did uh, this Polaris piece, which you can't see because I am not recording video for this. But uh, the Polaris that's on my wall, Seth did as well. Uh, and Seth has been wonderful, wonderful in uh, helping out on some design implements on the podcast, including our t-shirts and our Twitter banner. Uh, Seth, it's been a, a joy to have you involved in some areas of the podcast where I am terribly uh, ill-equipped to handle things. Uh, thank you for all your positive work, man. Yeah, it's been so fun. That's definitely the better part than me actually talking about Fred Duncan, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about you as a X-Men fan slash nerd and or a little bit about your professional work. I know you do a lot of uh, a lot of art professionally as well. Yeah, uh, so I've been reading X-Men comics since I was a little kid. Um, picked up, started picking them up from the spinner rack at 7-Eleven, started searching them out back from then on at my local comic book store that was just down, literally down the hill from my grade school. So I've been reading forever, um, stopped probably in the 2000s and came back about 10, 15 years after. So I have a big gap in my knowledge and I've kind of been filling in some of it. Some of it seems like I missed a lot. Some of it seems like I missed absolutely nothing. Uh, but it's been kind of, it's been especially fun coming back in the Krakoa era. It's been really cool. And it's also been fun reading the very old comics with you again. Um, so for art, I am a graphic designer and a long-term artist and illustrator on the side. And I just completed my very first graphic novel, which will be coming out this spring from Graphic Mundi. It's called The Mayor. Um, it is not available yet to order, but it will be in probably around wintertime this year. I hope I'm allowed to say this, but uh, Seth allowed me to read a copy of The Mayor. Uh, it's wonderful. Not only uh, am I a huge fan of your art, you're one of my favorite artists at this point. I'm enjoying a lot of your art lately. Uh, but the mayor's really, really lovely. I uh, I love the way books make me feel. Uh, the mayor gives me like a sense of nostalgia and mystery and uh, kind of a throwback to, I don't know the quite word. There's there's a resonance to it that just kind of sits with you. It's uh, it's kind of a slow build, very character driven mystery. Uh, and the way the art and the color work together, uh, I, I shared this with you in the notes I sent you initially, but uh, the way you use uh, color in the book, particularly with the color blue, uh, is is really, really wonderful. Even as I talk about it, I get that like sense of like resonant nostalgia a little bit. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Please, please make sure to check it out. Uh, not only is it good to support indie art, but it's a really, really quality, uh, wonderful book. So uh, so we'll we'll post some stuff from it when you are released. Do you have an official release date yet? It will be March of 23. If, uh, okay. every, you know, 
they, everything should be going scheduled. That's when I'm on the calendar date for them. Which seems like so far away, but also like snap your fingers, it'll be here. Yep, yep, it's scary. It's uh, it's pretty exciting, man. I'm uh, I'm really happy for you. Um, we uh, we are going to be meeting in person shortly too. Uh, I'll release this episode uh, on Sunday, the twenty, excuse me, on the fourteenth of August, and uh, I'm flying to New York City on the seventeenth for FlameCon. Uh, so I think I'll have a chance to meet Seth in person. We'll be sure to post some photos. Uh, I'm excited to meet you though, man. Uh, Mike and I are going to go to my, my husband and I are going to go to FlameCon. I get to meet a lot of people that I've built relationships with uh, through this uh, kind of community building in the podcast. It's going to be an honor. So if you guys are there at FlameCon, make sure to come say hello. I like to think I'm approachable. Uh, and uh, you might see Mr. Seth Martell there as well. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, so the, kind of what we're doing on this pod, on this uh, Patreon stuff is taking obscure characters that have some connection to the X-Men and just doing a deep dive. These are characters that you're not going to see explored in a lot of other formats. Occasionally, people will ask me the question, like, what's the most obscure X-Men fact you can think of? And there's a whole long list. But almost at the top of that list is the character Fred Duncan, who is such a bizarre connection point to the X-Men, who has a shocking amount of history with the team, but also nothing, there's really nothing about him <laughs> that we really know or is resonant. And it's hard to piece all the pieces together. Um, Seth, when we were initially talking, what made you choose Fred Duncan of all characters? Because I knew nothing about him. And if you were going to ask me to uh, talk about a character and I mean, your choices for your Patreon are weird. So out of all the choices that you were giving me, this one, at least I really had to research and read, read something about because I I had a vague idea who he was, but I really didn't know. It's uh, it's fun to delve in and like become an expert in a character that nobody cares about kind of in a, in a weird way. Uh, and if you think this is a weird choice, wait until you see what we have coming up on the page <laughs> in the next couple of months. Um, so let's talk about uh, Fred Duncan for just a minute. This is a character that showed up initially in the very beginning of the X-Men. We have talked about him on the podcast a little bit. X-Men number two, uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby, September 1963. He is there right at the very beginning. Uh, the mutant Vanisher has been stealing some shit that is not his. And so uh, FBI agent Fred Duncan, who is sitting in a room that overlooks the United States Capitol building, puts on a, quote, strange looking scalp device, <laughs> end quote, which has been given to him by Professor X to contact him in times of need. It's like a little uh, little mini Cerebro unit, like a, like a pager mutant style. Uh, Duncan has white hair here. He's in a blue suit. Uh, he has a fellow agent that's his friend Bill that's kind of sitting in the corner. Uh, smoking a pipe and uh, Duncan relays his thoughts to Professor X that Vanisher who has threatened to steal the government's continental defense plans uh, is is attacking and they need help so Professor X leads the X-Men into containing the Vanisher afterward they erase his mind we'll do some stuff on the Vanisher on the podcast in the future when he eventually gets a trial uh, there's a sign by, behind Duncan in this issue that says he works for the Department of Special Affairs. So he's an FBI guy. He is working in some sort of mutant-centric uh, space, and he's allied with Professor X. Um, what makes this character significant here, Seth, in your opinion? Uh, if, you have, if you have an opinion, he's a pretty minor character. Uh, you know, the truth is that I think what makes him special is just how generically nothing he is. He's just... like. I was using air quotes, but like a government agent for the X-Men to use as like a plot device. He's, he's kind of not special. 
Yeah, so 63, I'm thinking back to like old Over. shows like, uh, like Dragnet or uh, uh, stuff that featured, you know, just cops like this. Um, the, I think the major significance for me falls in two spaces. Number one, this is the first X-Men supporting character that's like a non-mutant. Uh, and there's been, you know, of course, dozens and dozens of supporting characters over the years that we love. Uh, and number two, this shows us an example in a very small way of Professor X working with the humans. Uh, who are some of your favorite X-Men supporting characters, if you if you have any? I mean, you know, how far are we going back? I mean, I, I think that back then, they weren't, like, a lot of the supporting characters of the 60s weren't terribly fleshed out. I don't think that they got too interesting until later when Claremont really started taking interest in supporting characters. Yeah, yeah. Claremont, they started getting interesting. Claremont, Claremont brought in people like Stevie Hunter and Trish Tilby. And uh, in the 60s, we basically have Vera Cantor, Zelda, and Candy Southerd. I mean, that's that's kind of it. With a, few, with a few others. Jean had that guy she dated in college for a second, for example. But... <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't even remember him. Ted, his name is Ted. Ted, Ted I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but uh, but uh, do you have any favorites from the the Claremont era? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Stevie Hunter was cool. Tom Corsi is cool. Um, uh, it was who was Tom with Sharon? Like Sharon they were kind of yeah. yeah, I love Amanda Sefton. Amanda Sefton was always kind of interesting because she had like so much more going on behind the scenes. She was really cool. Uh, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of then, great people. And then I think for a lot of years, the major supporting character was Moira McTaggart, who, of course, is uh, now a supervillain. <laughs> but uh, but she was like the big ally for a long time. Uh, but Fred Duncan was the the first one. He's only in two panels. And back then, the X-Men's fight is against evil mutants. So the FBI is helping to identify uh, evil mutants. And Vanisher is a national defense threat. So to get uh, Xavier involved on this is a really interesting thing. Now... The interesting thing about this character is he's never around very much. He's never around for more than an issue or two. Uh, but every 10 or 20 or 30 years, he'll kind of pop up. Like writers will remember him and then tell some sort of retroactive story that fits him in somewhere. Um, so the next time we get him is back in like 1967. They start the backup features for the X-Men that explore their prehistory. And in issues number 38 and 39, Roy Thomas and Werner Roth uh, tell stories about Professor X uh, forming the X-Men. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that story, Seth? What happens in uh, in those backup stories with Fred? Oh, is that the one with Scott? Yeah, yeah. When the, Scott's the orphan and the Jack of Diamonds and all that craziness. Yeah, that was really strange. But... Um... But uh, doesn't he actually help make the connection for the two of them and uh, erase? I'm trying to remember what he does. He erases his files for him. I can't exactly remember what he did it there. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the the basic story is Fred's Fred's watching like a TV show with his friend Bill, who again works himself in once in a while. Uh, there's, there's <laughs> Bill. There's a there's a news report about some uh, some violent protesters who lashed out against a mutant. He's blonde here. Uh, he's, he says to Bill after the report, he goes, that's enough, Bill, turn the set off. I'm convinced we've got to act to begin an investigation of this so-called mutant menace. Uh, he sees some footage of uh, Scott Summers uh, uh, using his powers in public, and he says, it's uncanny. There's something about the thought of mutants or otherwise normal human beings born with some extra power that drives mankind to distrust, fear, even hatred. 
Uh, and it's then that Professor X uh, works his way into the room using his telepathy to kind of bypass agents uh, and get in. And uh, Fred, who's called Amos here, uh, later later writers will say, or the handbook kind of clears it up, his name is Fred Amos Duncan, because that's an easy way to fix it. Uh, in fact, I'm thinking of like uh, 60s Stanley called the Hulk Bruce Banner at first, but then later accidentally called him Bob Banner. So they <laughs> have to change his name to Robert Bruce Banner. <laughs> Fred Duncan gets that treatment. We get uh, Fred Frederick Amos Duncan is his name. Uh, but Fred draws his gun on Xavier, who stops him from using it. Um, and uh, Xavier reveals he's a mutant and uh, he wants Fred to help him save other mutants. One of the big mysteries here for me is, is Xavier compelling Fred to work with him or is Fred a willing and able ally? What are your thoughts? I mean, I always err on the side of Xavier being sketchy. It seems so. Uh, the the only the only difference here being we'll talk about first X Men in a minute, but uh, we get later continuity that shows prehistory of Fred prior to this meeting with Xavier uh, being involved in the mutant space as well. So it's kind of interesting when you mash all the continuity together. But there does seem to be some of some some stuff that uh, that Professor X seems to be forcing Fred or compelling him to help in some way, which is interesting. Uh, what's the shittiest thing Professor X has ever done, Seth? Oh, jeez. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of options there. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, everything he does, he seems to feel like he can justify, but it just always seems like he's just gaslighting everybody all the time. I, uh, I'm recording with uh, Clay McLeod Chaplin later where we, we cover the story where he helps recruit Beast and then immediately deletes Beast's uh, powers from the minds of everyone in Beast's town. He just like blanket telepathy. I'm going to delete this memory from everyone without anyone's consent. Uh, he's scary. <laughs> he's, a, he's a scary dude. Uh, what would you do if you had telepathy? Would you use it for good or evil? Oh God, I don't want that power don't want that at least i don't want to know would you would i mean would you really uh i feel like it would be impossible to only use it for good without a very very strong moral code if you could just unlock everyone's brain i mean like using it to solve police investigations would be interesting but i would just like want to know what everybody thinks all the time and then i would never trust anybody like <laughs> that sounds exhausting uh what superpower would you want Oh, you know, just something. I, I, definitely telekinesis. That's great. That's such like a catch-all toolbox of power, right? You know, you can fly, you can move things, you can do so many things. And especially if you, you know, read the comics, they can basically make that power work for any plot device you really want. So in real life, why not? Or you can sit on too. the couch and uh, and levitate yourself a beer. Slice, a, slice an entire cake for all your guests. <laughs> Jean Grey has even done so, I'm sure, a time or two. Uh, so when Xavier uh, allies with Fred in this backup story, they agree to kind of share intel, which is an interesting thing. Uh, they want to be able to help uh, vulnerable mutants. And Fred has this whole kind of investigative space where uh, where he is keeping track of vulnerable mutants. So he's the one that kind of clues Xavier into Cyclops, unless Moira already did that. <laughs> Retcons, you never know how it's going to work out. 
Um, uh, Xavier says, let us hope we both reason correctly. Our, on us uh, may depend the survival of all humanity. Uh, so Fred's hair has already been white and uh, blonde. It's now brown in his next appearance. Uh, and he's so much younger. He's so much younger. <laughs> he like de-aged. He went through uh, uh, the Krakoan resurrection protocols, perhaps. <laughs> no, just kidding. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a very younger interpretation, which almost seems to imply that they've known each other for years, but that doesn't work because Cyclops is just a teen here. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he uh, maybe he got a facelift <laughs> and it wore off later. Uh, but his hair is brown in his third appearance. Uh, he gives Xavier all the intel he has, which again implies uh, a lack of consent almost. Uh, they track down Cyclops, who is the future leader of the X-Men. Uh, we go back into X-Men 10 and 16. Xavier has passing mentions of, uh, of being in contact with Washington during their missions with Kesar in the Savage Land and the Sentinels. Uh, Duncan's not named, but you probably can insert him into the continuity there if you want. Uh, and if you go all the way forward to 1996, uh, Ben Robb, who, we've, uh, who we have interviewed on the podcast, wrote Uncanny Origins number one, which, uh, which is Cyclops's story. And uh, he adds the detail that Duncan helped arrange for Xavier to get custody of Scott out of the orphanage and uh, into this uh, private school. Uh, we don't see Fred again till X-Men number 46, which is that weird story where Professor X is pretending to be dead uh, July 1968, Gary Friedrich and Werner Roth. Uh, Duncan does not go to Xavier's funeral, but he does show him uh, show up uh, again, calling himself Amos. Uh, and he goes to Xavier's mansion. The X-Men have just returned from Xavier's funeral. Uh, he waits for the X-Men to listen to Xavier's fake will. He says he has a matter of grave importance to share with them. Uh, but before he can deliver his news, who attacks? Oh, the juggernaut. The juggernaut, who is savage with Duncan. Tell us about this scene with uh, with juggernaut confronting Duncan. Oh, dude, he just like pile drives him into the ceiling and throws him out a window, which apparently <laughs> is not a big deal for, for, for Fred, which I don't get at all. He's just a human, but he just gets annihilated here. He, yeah, he's. It looks really savage. Maybe, uh, maybe Juggernaut pulled his punch or something. But yeah, he slams him up into the roof, man. It's nuts. It just like chucks him out the window. Um, and then uh, Duncan disbands the team. Uh, <laughs> after after Juggernaut is defeated, he says, "What's just happened makes it all the more important that I talk to you because it proves that it's mandatory you split up with the professor gone. It isn't wise for all of you to be here together." You make far too easy a target for the ever-growing population of evil mutants. This coupled with the fact that you can be much more effective if you spread yourselves out across the country forces me to order you to disband and leave the school forever. You'll each receive a letter from me in a few days, instructions on where you should go. And it seems to be setting up a new status quo for the X-Men, but it only lasts for a couple issues before they're back together anyway. Uh, we learn way later that uh, Professor X has told Duncan to do this. We'll talk about that story in just a minute. But uh, this is Xavier saying, I'm hiding in the basement. <laughs> the X-Men can't find me. So will you please come here and tell them to go away? Although he could just use his powers. Uh, what were your thoughts on this whole thing about the FBI disbanding the team? I mean, there's just some weird shit going on here. First, like Scott yells out, Agent Duncan, I'd forgotten about you. <laughs> I forgot you just totally got mashed by the juggernaut and thrown out the window, but it happens so much around here that I forgot to look for any bodies on the front lawn. Also, you helped me get adopted that one time. Yeah, well, he doesn't know that. 
but you know, it, it really, it's funny because I wonder if I had, well, everything was like, just so like ephemeral back then with their stories, but you know, had I been reading it here, I would have been actually more sketched out about Duncan instead of Xavier because Duncan here, he just, just gets up, brushes it off and disbands the team. I would have thought he would be somebody like the changeling after like somebody got knocked out and came in to disband the team for more, uh, you know, nefarious and dark reasons than what Xavier is actually doing, which is just insane as well. But I also wanted to ask you in the scene, like, I don't know if you remember, but like, is that the same obelisk that shows up later in like Claremont things? Oh, like the, like the Ngarai obelisk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably could fill that in, but I think there's like a cemetery or a burial ground on the estate. Uh, and I think they're in that like sure. cemetery section. Um, when Anthony Oliveira, who I adore, uh, wrote his Iceman flashback story to like this era of X-Men, uh, that that like scene in the uh, the Marvel Voices Pride issue where Magneto like flies up to the school and uh, he's going to attack, but then he ends up like comforting Iceman for being gay. Uh, Iceman's sitting in front of the Ingarai obelisk. He's uh, he's sitting in front of it like weeping and Magneto comforts him. It's a great it's a great little story if you haven't read it. Uh, but I don't think that's the obelisk. I think it looks a little bit different. Uh, we'll get to the Ungarai on the uh, <laughs> on the podcast eventually. But may yeah, maybe it's in the graveyard. Who knows? I'm just glad that you said that word and I didn't have to say it because I've only ever said that in my head. Never had to say it out loud to any other human before. There, uh, When I worked on the handbooks, there were like some serious debates on certain words. Uh, like, for example, the Shi'ar. Like it's S H I apostrophe capital A R. Like if you don't use the capital A, it's not spelled correctly. Oh. Uh, and people would say shy R, and they're like, no, it's she R. Uh, but I don't remember a specific pronoun. I've always said it in Garai in my head. Uh, it's N apostrophe G A R A I, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that sounds about right to me, but I have a very foggy memory of all, all of those issues. Yeah, yeah. There's that classic Christmas story where Kitty Pride's like running from that demon in the house. Uh, she's like, yeah, and Claremont spends all that time murdering that couple and making you feel for them as he just like <laughs> destroys him on off panel. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas. I'm, I'm starting to give some consideration about what the podcast becomes after we get through the 60s stuff. Uh, and we may end up doing the Claremont stuff later, but uh, the issue reviews will be much longer because there's so much more content. <laughs> but I'm excited yeah. about the potential of uh, going back. I haven't read the Claremont uh, stuff back to back in a long time. Uh, with the exception of like trial prep when I go back and read key issues for whatever character. Like I just read the whole Hell Hellfire, Dark Phoenix saga, which, God, it's so good. Uh, um, when I had uh, when I had Maria Wolf and Derek Kunskin on the pod... <laughs> And we did uh, that issue from Bizarre Adventures 27 about Jean Grey in the future. And it's Claremont written. We were, I was just like, oh my God, this is so much better. <laughs> yeah. There's so much more to talk about and so much more to actually discuss. Um, you spent so much more time putting some depth into it that you actually can think about. I mean, here, I guess maybe it is interesting too, because you can spend some time debating things like, you know, was Professor Xavier manipulating somebody because there's no subtext there really except for what you're reading into it but um i'm uh i'm interviewing elliot r brown in a couple days and we're doing x-men 54 and there's a scene where angel i totally fucking forgot this angel gets speared there's a spear through his wing 
against the wall and he's like oh no my wing i've been speared and then there's no mention he's just like flying a second later and you're like holy shit <laughs> what, what just happened <laughs> maybe they just didn't really understand how the wings work back then they're just you know just feathers and it just went straight through and that's yeah. it yeah like, nope uh, like catching they, you by catching you by the hair or something that that's all he really thought about it because it's infamous like the harpoon scene later well anyway we'll talk about that with uh with uh elliot but it's it's nuts uh so duncan's gone after that we don't see him basically for quite some time um Superman creator Jerry Siegel does a couple angel stories after the book is canceled in uh, in KSR and uh, then in Marvel Tales. And we get to see Duncan briefly. He's featured kind of prominently, but we pretty much learn nothing about him. Angel is fighting some thugs who just helped murder his father. He is overcome with grief. And uh, Duncan basically lectures him on like, you got to let the law do its job. You can't you know, do this on your own. Um, we He's been identified as like the mutant division of the FBI at this point. So instead of just special division, he's like, he's got some clout. He's like the FBI guy that focuses on mutants, which again, there could be a lot more stories told. We don't really know what's happening in this guy's life. Um, when Angel says, I want to pursue mutant justice, Duncan says, you sound a little more like Magneto than you do Xavier, which kind of puts Xavier, uh, Angel in his place a little bit. Uh, he arrests these guys and goes to question them, but they get incinerated uh, like supervillain style because this villain, the Dazzler, who is Angel's uncle, uh, like blasts them from far away. We'll Angel's get uncle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angel, it's, it's very Hamlet, this story. We'll get there on the podcast eventually, but Angel's uncle, Bert, no, no joke, uh, is the Dazzler and he murders Angel's father and then tries to marry his mother to get control of Worthington Industries. Uh, wow. Yeah, we'll, we'll called get him, called himself the Dazzler to do it, huh? Yep, the Dazzler, not the Allison Blair Dazzler, who's a much no, no. I had to, I had to look him up just to even see what he looked like. He's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, the whole Siegel story is like very, uh, like very 1940s. Like the Dazzler has, if I'm remembering, he has like a base in the in the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. Like <laughs> it's a well. Again, we'll get there eventually. It's uh, it's a story we'll cover on the podcast, but it's pretty nuts. Um, putting this in continuity order, we see Duncan again in John Byrne's X-Men The Hidden Years, number 17. Uh, he shows up to help clean up a mess with this little mutant kid named Andrea Martin that Xavier is helping. Um, uh, he confesses to Xavier that he struggled when Xavier faked his death and then came back to life. Uh, and then in 1973, Steve Gerber and Ross Andrew gave us Duncan in, of all places, Shanna the She-Devil, number five. Uh, which I love actually this issue because it has the characters Mandrill and Mikra in it. And I adore, adore these two characters. Uh, we're going to have some Mandrill content coming up on the podcast in our sexual assault conversation. Uh, where are the American flag knows? <laughs> he's, he's nuts, man. We'll, we're going to talk about him in the sexual assault panel, but there's a, I, I love obscure Marvel history. There's, there's a plot line in Daredevil. Oh, it might be Defenders. I think it's Daredevil where the mandrel has his own face carved onto Mount Rushmore. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a thing in Marvel continuity. I fucking love it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Duncan shows up there for just a minute and like gives intel to some agents on these guys. He's mentioned in Marvel team up 118, uh, where he sets up a meeting between professor power and professor uh, and professor X professor power is a great old classic uh, Marvel villain that I love too. He's a defenders guy. 
there's a mention of him in the book called Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe, uh, number four, where it says Xavier severed his connection with Duncan after a while, uh, fearing that the government would uh, turn against mutants. And then that's kind of all we get from Duncan until a little bit more recent years where there's a little bit more meat added to his story. But tell me your thoughts on this guy. Like, who is he? What's his deal? What's his life like? Uh, where we just kind of piece these random appearances over several years together. Yeah, I mean, up till now, he's literally just the, the company man of the government who is, you know, just serves the purpose for the writer who needs a government liaison to step in. And uh, he's like pre-Val Cooper you know yeah and he they just don't really spend i mean like they take some time making sure that you know that he's like a, a good guy you know in the government you know he's like he's kind of on your side but outside of that he's he's just I, and i think that's why he looks different in every every appearance too it's like nobody actually took the time to actually care about him he's just a he's a, a figurehead of the government and that's it if uh if we compare him, we're going to assume Xavier is not mind controlling or influencing him. But if we compare him to most of the human characters back then, a lot of them are portrayed as like anti-mutant bigots. And this is the guy who's like pro-mutant and wants to help. Uh, he sees the bigger picture. And that's pretty consistent with his character in the stories that we're about to cover uh, that are kind of to told more recently. Uh, but I kind of like him. It makes me want to know more about him. I'm curious about his story, but good Lord, it's like, it's like a whole detective hunt to try to piece these appearances together. Like who's going to look for Fred Duncan and Shanna, the she devil or uh, Marvel team up, you know, like uh, it's just these random stories where you just don't know much about this guy. I think what's really cool with all this reading and even with, even with like the ones that we haven't covered yet, like what's really neat to like actually step back and look at him. He's truly one of the few untapped X-Men background characters. Like everybody's gone back and grabbed a piece of X-Men history and done something with it. He's one of the few that really hasn't had any sort of like insane uh, fleshing out. I would actually really enjoy a, a Duncan feature uh, set back then where it kind of tells us his story but it would also tie in the stories we're about to cover, which are considered continuity, but are also very obscure when it comes to our X-Men reading. So we kind of get our first deep dive into Duncan. Uh, this story is set in kind of the later Claremont era, like um, around X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, like 290. Uh, I'm picturing that cover, that iconic cover of like Storm and her white suit uh, standing while like the rain falls on her head. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. That's what I picture like right around this era. Uh, but it's set after that. So uh, the story comes out in, excuse me, it's set then, but the story is not published until 2008. Uh, so this book is called X-Men Odd Men Out. Uh, it's a one shot that's written by Roger Stern, who is a incredible kind of Marvel continuity guy. Uh, his run on Avengers is one of my favorite runs in comics. If I put together a top 20, uh, his Avengers run is easily in that. And uh, he gives us uh, some gorgeous unpublished art by Dave Cockrum, which is kind of the pull for this issue. And he uses Fred Duncan as, as the thing that ties this all together. So uh, do, you Fred, know, do you know the history of this? Was Cockrum still alive when this was published? As I read this and I wanted to ask you a bunch, but I figured I'd save my questions for today. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me double check on that while we are recording uh, when Dave Cockrum died. But uh, what did you think of the art in this issue? Are you a Cockrum fan? You know, I have a lot of respect for him. He, he 
there's a certain style that is just such like all his and it serves as such a true marker of x-men history which is really cool what i thought was interesting is that i didn't actually think that this, this was a very cockroom-esque uh art showing it was good and you know it was it was it was very solid i just was surprised for me i didn't actually think it was like as iconic looking and i guess that happens as people age i mean you know once we hit the neil adams one next it's like kind of crazy just to see you know how people's style changes as it goes uh but um it was, it was good. So it was fun to see. So Cockrum, uh, Cockrum, his last published X Men art was in 1985, the Nightcrawler limited series. He did the Star Jammers limited series in 1990, and then like a, a bit piece in Marvel Holiday Special 1991, which is an X Men story. And then he died in 2006. And X Men Odd Men Out in 2008 takes two issues that he had drawn for X-Men and the New Mutants that had never been published and kind of they weave it together creatively to create this issue. So it's like a Cockrum tribute issue. I, I have to make sure I say Cockrum and not cock. <laughs> Seth, do you like cock? This is a cock themed issue. No, that's a, that's a terrible woof. Well, welcome to the Patreon, everybody. <laughs> um, but it's, it's pretty, I like his pencils. Um, we're going to talk about this with Neil Adams in first X-Men in a minute too, but Cockrum's, Cockrum's pencils in the original Uncanny X-Men is gorgeous. And it, it doesn't have the same magic here. Uh, but you have to be a Cockrum fan to like this. Anyway, the story that's being told, we, we see Fred Frederick Amos Duncan. It says his name on the page here again. He's formerly of the FBI. He has quit. He is now working. Again, this is set in the, in the like X-Men 290 era. He is working as a security consultant for various companies. He has a German shepherd named Helmut. Uh, Xavier astrally projects through his wall in this issue. Uh, he is flanked by like Beast, Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean Grey outside. And then he and Xavier just kind of recount their history together, uh, including the time Xavier asked Duncan to disband the X-Men for him. So that's where we get that ad. Uh, he didn't just disband him. It was on Xavier's request. Um, we, we learned that Duncan has been tracking the X-Men's activities for years. There was a time he was called to the White House by the president. And Marvel has this interesting thing where because of their sliding time scale, they generally, if they have a story with the president, they'll generally put the president in shadow. Because if it was Reagan at the time and you slide the time scale over, now it's Obama, but you slide it up again and it's someone else. So there's like this shadowy president. Uh, when he was there, he met with Robert Kelly Henry Peter Gyrick and Valerie Cooper, who are all uh, major X-Men supporting characters over the years. And they discuss Project Wide Awake, which is uh, a huge thing in the 90s X-Men where the Sentinels are being used by the government uh, and they're making mutants register. Uh, uh, Duncan is opposed to this idea. And right after that is when uh, this is all set retroactively. So we're, we're seeing pieces of the X-Men's history with Duncan's kind of loose involvement. Right after that is when all of the X-Men's files disappeared, both digital and paper. So after uh, uh, the adversary battle is it Fall of the Mutants, uh, Roma cast that spell where like everything about the X-Men disappeared from all of the computers. And Gyrick accused Duncan of being behind this and so this is the point we learn where he resigned from the FBI. Uh, so we're back in the we're back in the present, except it wasn't the present, where Xavier's listening to Duncan kind of 
uh, talk about this complicated history with mutants and aliens and psychic entities. Xavier shares what's been happening to him over the years, his like space adventures with Lalandra and the Starjammers, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, we see this kind of quote from uh, Duncan kind of talking about his experiences. Uh, Seth, do you have that quote pulled up? Will you, will you read what he says for us? Uh, my experience paid off nicely in the private sector. Being a security consultant got me a nice house and plenty of free time for my other interests. I've been writing a book and I hope to blow the lid off the government's mishandling of anti-mutant hysteria. Thanks to the Freedom Information Act, I've been able to dig up plenty of dirt. They've denied me a lot claiming national security, but I still have enough to make them sweat. Xavier expressed concern for Duncan's safety and he says back that makes it all the more important. What was it that Edmund Burke was supposed to have said? The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I've lived with danger before Charles and I can stand to live with it again. And uh, Edmund Burke is uh, like a guy from the British Parliament that he's quoting here who has this famous quote. Uh, what do you think about uh, Duncan's portrayal in this issue? It's kind of the first time we ever see anything more than just him showing up for a page or two. We get to see his home life, his kind of goals and motivations. He's He's picking up the pieces of his life and making something out of himself. Yeah, it's interesting. I, it's, if I so I wasn't reading comics at the time here, but how to pick this up? Like, it's kind of like two things. So first off, this felt like an actual like X Men primer, like a reintroduction for you know a casual or a non reader to kind of just get like picked back into what's been going on in X Men, what's the history. Kind of it's it's just a it's like a recap episode essentially, and and they use him in a great way for it, but almost as if they're setting him up to kind of be a player again or try to like actually work him in. And it's surprising that something didn't come of it. I actually thought maybe they would do something where they did like, you know, Gyrich, Gyrich is the bad government guy. Val Cooper is kind of like the gray, gray in between morally, you know, does her ship, whatever she kind of feels like to get, you know, to get her ends, you know, ends to meet or whatever she's trying to actually make happen at the time. And then he seems to be the one with the, you know, actual moral compass. And it kind of would have been interesting to have all three of them be the players that went forward in the future. And they just kind of dropped it. Strange. I don't, I don't know the specific history here, but I do know Marvel historically has had kind of backup issues because the, because the production moves so quickly. Like let's say they've hired you as the monthly artist and you get five issues done in a row, but then you fall behind. And so instead of X-Men number 12, they're going, that you would draw, they're going to reprint something out of the file drawer that they've had waiting and it can kind of be set anywhere. This almost comes across like that's that to me. It's, it's kind of like they had Cockrum draw this stuff. I don't know. I don't know this uh, officially. We'd have to ask editorial, but uh, like they needed an issue fill in just in case. And so they decided let's do a Fred Duncan story. We'll kind of tie it all together and he can, we can recap a bunch of history and then they can just put it wherever, but they never used it. And then after Cockrum died, they're like, well, yeah, let's go back and print this story now. Uh, that is what it feels like. And you do wonder, like, did Roger Stern write it at the time or was, did Roger Stern write it later? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the details. It's very possible he went back and kind of added it together. Um, the title alone, X-Men Odd Men Out. Uh, there, There is another issue after this, by the way, that's an unprinted New Mutants issue that's also in that same space. Uh, but Odd Men Out is kind of an interesting title. Uh, it makes you look like uh, Fred Duncan doesn't quite fit anywhere. I love this idea of him sitting at home with his German shepherd, doing security consulting and writing a book. Like uh, he left stuff on principle. 
And uh, after being the nice guy for a long time, uh, it shows that he has a lot of character, a lot of resolve. And frankly, his life is probably in danger. Like he's made some enemies along the way. You do not want to mess with fucking Henry Peter Gyrick, who is a character, by the way, that I love. I love that villain. They killed him in Sword recently. Have you read that? No, I haven't. But, you know, it's funny because as like generic looking as um, Duncan's been this whole time, Gyrick is like, you can spot him a mile away everywhere he is. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, he's a character and they took the time to actually make him, like make his look matter. Gyrick is, uh, Gyrick has been in a lot of stuff, the, the cartoons and the movies, but he, uh, he's a character that's been used in a lot of titles, frankly. Uh, Avengers, he was like, the guy who had to police their number, like you could only have seven members on your team and I get to approve. He, <laughs> he, Never got that as a kid. He forced Falcon on the team. He's like, you have to have a person of color. Uh, he was also like the villain in the Thunderbolts for a while, which Kurt Busiek, uh, Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley's Thunderbolts is so good. Fabian Nicieza took that character. He's like, what if J. Jonah Jameson turned evil? Um, spoilers, but in the recent Sword series, uh, just a couple years ago, Abigail Brand murders him. He was part of Orcus, and she opens an airlock in space and like shoves him out, and he he fucking chokes to death in space, which is nuts. We'll get there eventually. I would love to do the trial of Henry Peter Gyrick on my podcast, but uh, but Duncan is the counter to that as the guy who's actually decent and good. Like he he comes across really well in this issue. It's kind of the only time he works as a character for me, if I'm honest. Is Doesn't it, it almost uh, set him up like he's about to be murdered? Yeah, it, it almost seems to hint like something dark could happen to this guy. And then he's murdered off panel later, which we'll get to. But uh, there's more story to be told here for sure. Um, it's it, it's the only time he's used well is uh, this issue. We don't know if he's ever been married or has children. We like There's so much about his life we don't know. But I like this character in the Odd Men Out issue. I, I like his connection to Xavier. Uh, I like his pro-mutant stance and like he's the guy that'll stand up and, and do what's right. Uh, he comes across well here. Um, then in 2012, <laughs> I'm excited to hear you talk about this. Okay, so we're getting ready in my podcast back in the 60s. We're getting ready to come up on Neil Adams. Uh, Neil Adams was uh, an incredible artist. Uh, he, from the very first moment he comes into the X-Men, he changes everything. Uh, his art in the 60s books, I'm really excited to start reviewing it because he carries the book all the way from like number 56 to 66, I think. Uh, it's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about him in the podcast proper. But he died just like a few months ago. He died in 2022. In 2012, they brought him back for a special project with one of my favorite writers from my handbook days, Christos Gage. I hope to interview Christos on the podcast. He is an absolutely lovely person and a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, but Christos Gage and Fred Duncan, excuse me, good Lord, and Neil Adams put the uh, first X-Men together, which is a series meant to be before X-Men number one, uh, set back in like the 60s times. Uh, tell us about first X-Men and uh, your opinions on Neil Adams' art in this versus uh, in his 60s run. Oh, God. Well, I mean... Just for a point of reference, like Neil Adams shocked the shit out of me as a little kid. He, like I was used to just picking up, you know, fun, exciting, kinetic energy of like Mark Silvestri and, and other people and then picking up back issues that were all, all different types of things. But when you went really far, far back to these years and you had people like Werner Roth, like you understood that it was older. But as a kid, I hated Kirby. I hated Werner Roth. I just did not like that style at all. And then I saw 
the uh, Neil Adam issues on, they were always, you know, tacked up in, in very heavy, heavy, you know, mylar up on the wall. And I would save up to buy those issues whenever I could get them because that was the only way I could truly see his art and, and study it. And I would copy his drawings. I just thought he was incredible. His use of light and shadow and his just like dynamic panel usage, it's just stunning. And it was such a turning point in those comics back then. Not that I was reading it at the time, but going in actually, you know, investigating back issues and finding it. I, I was just blown away and completely, completely in love with every single thing he did. And anytime you could get a reprint of it and not have to actually pay money to find that issue, it was just so fun. So then you get to, I, I, you know, I didn't know what actually had happened to him because I wasn't reading comics, you know, when I was getting older. And then 2012, I don't know if I was reading comics, maybe because I kind of have a vague recollection of seeing ads for these. I feel like there might've been like single page, full page ads telling, like talking about this uh, first X-Men book. And it is just, I wish that they had taken the time to find, and I'm not saying that anything was wrong with the inker themselves, but I wish that they had hired an inker specifically to bring back some of the nostalgic feeling of Neil Adams, because this is sketchy and messy and just, uh, frankly, like it's a, it's a lot to take in on the panel. Like things are like all over the place. And I just, it's a rough one. I, I feel bad. I'm, I'm sure Neil Adams is a great dude and he, you know, he's got an amazing body of work, but this one was not a fine, not a fine show. Yeah. So he's in his, I believe seventies when they made this. And I mean, he's, he's iconic for his run on X-Men for the Kree scroll war and Avengers. But at this point he's been away from Marvel for a long time. He's done a lot of DC stuff. Uh, he did, uh, he did a special in, I think it was giant size X-Men number three in like, the early 2000s uh and then he did some stuff with like uh new avengers with bendis uh and then they let him do this first x-men book he drew it he plotted it i don't know if it's just not inked properly the art is not appealing i don't like the way it looks even though i love him um after that he did like a fantastic four limited i think that's his final marvel stuff uh uh, and then he died from like, uh, 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 I don't know, he's in his 80s, uh, just this just this year um, in 2022. Anyway, first X-Men, I think he drew it and plotted it himself. And then kind of Marvel method, Christos Gage came in and tried to tell a story. Uh, it gives us a lot of Duncan content, but it's a weird story that I don't love. However, it does fit into continuity. Uh, I'm going to interview, this is a preemptive announcement just for our Patreon episode listeners, but I'm going to interview Tom Brevoort in a few weeks, which is such a big fucking deal. And one of the questions I have on my list is what makes first X-Men work as continuity? Because there's other old X-Men continuity stuff that doesn't fit. Hidden Years is continuity, but like X-Men First Class, which is an amazing series by Jeff Parker, is considered not in continuity. So those are some of the questions I'll be talking to Tom about. Uh, anyway, okay, let me, let me recap this series very quickly. Fred Duncan, Fred Duncan <laughs> is, is it worth it? <laughs> For Fred Duncan, yes, it is. It's, a, it's one of the few things we got. So he's working underneath, uh, this is before the X-Men, before he meets Xavier. He's working underneath the direction of FBI director Hartfield. He's been assigned to a team that's set to address the rising threat of mutants. And again, I know Christos Gage pretty well from my handbook days. I know he very carefully would have gone over every ounce of continuity to make sure this fit. And he did a good job making it fit, even though I don't love the story. 
Uh, Duncan at, on this team argues that mutants could be allies. One of the guys on this team is Bolivar Trask, who's the Sentinel creator guy. So it gives us some backstory for Trask as well. Uh, Trask is arguing that mutants should be eradicated. Uh, he's He's got some money give, coming his way so he can design some containment robots. So it's like, a, it's like some early threads into how the Sentinels were created. Uh, and then Director Hartfield shows in this really creepy fucking mutant that's never been used again named Virus, who has these mind control abilities. Uh, Seth, describe Virus for us. <laughs> He's like, um, like, uh, oh God, a monster baby with tentacles. And I'm still not sure. I think the tentacles ended in syringes. I didn't quite understand it because, again, the art is really messy. And he just, he... He's yeah, kind of got like a really unsettling baby face and it's not exactly scary. It's kind of comical, but also frightening. Well, and it's, it's, it's just weird. We have a guy that's like, let's eradicate mutants, but also we're going to bring in the ugliest, grossest mutant possible to help us. You know, virus virus could be, I suppose, using his mind control abilities to get influence here. That's always a way around these stories. Anyway, Duncan ends up, uh, he's, he's trying to recruit a team of mutants to work with. And so again, the title's called First X-Men. He finds an amnesiac, uh, Namor the Submariner. He's employing some mandroids to do this. That doesn't end up working. And then he finds a team uh, that Wolverine has set up. He's going by Logan here. Uh, and again, Logan's going to have his mind wiped later, right? As he always does. But uh, it's, it's, Logan has this team that uh, includes Sabretooth, which... I, they work together on Team X, so I guess it works. And then there's three mutants that we don't really know uh, much more about. Their names are Bomb, Hollow, and Yeti. Uh, oh, Yeti! Yeti's design is rough as well. Oh man, <laughs> he's uh he's kind of like an ugly Wendigo, <laughs> but like a human. He's like a human face. He's like his mutant power was just like growing too much hair. Yeah, he's uh he's weird looking. Uh, and I'm not even gonna spend time on these characters. Uh, technically they're continuity, but I'm not fond of any of them. Uh, but you know they could be they could come back on Krakoa as an obscure reference, and I'd be thrilled. Oh my god, they could come back on Krakoa. Oh no, they could. <laughs> you don't want to see Virus and Yeti on Krakoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also those like little creepy ones too, like the little child ones that I didn't understand very well. They kind of popped out of nowhere. There was like, oh yeah, yeah. Their oh, names out, like. There's a character named Yeti on, uh, uh, oh goodness, it was like Project Double Strike or something. It was used in like uh, the X Men Volume Two, Jim Lee era. There's like a, there's like a guy, oh. named, there's like a guy named Yeti, and there's like a couple twins. Uh, was that? Are you sure that wasn't Liefeld or some shit? Or was that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up in a minute, but I, I doubt it's the same Yeti. I'm just barely remembering. I should have pieced this together earlier. Uh, I'll look it up in, in just a minute. Anyway. Uh, so Trask has started experimenting on mutants as something, a part of something called Project Chimera. In their next meeting, he Trask very aggressively accuses Duncan of being like a mutant himself or a mutant sympathizer. Uh, Virus is mind controlling mutants to be like a vessel to carry his essence. Oh, it's it's already frustrating. Uh, Logan's group attacks to free the captive mutants there, and Duncan tries to like broker peace between the government and and this mutant team. Uh, but Virus just like makes them all fight each other. Fuck it, blah blah blah. It goes on. Hartfield authorizes Trask to send Sentinels after Logan's group of first X Men. 
Uh, Duncan rushes to warn them and he ends up meeting Charles Xavier for the first time. Xavier could have deleted this memory later, so we can still fit this into continuity again. Things escalate. There's a big giant fight. Hartfield and Trask end up getting fired and Duncan is put in charge of the Department of Mutant Affairs, which technically sets him up prior to his appearance in X-Men number two. Uh, so this is kind of our last big Duncan story. I don't love him in this series, but again, it does technically fit. What does this tell you about Duncan? Uh, if anything. <laughs> Nothing. Oh, dude, uh, this was just, I, I mean, this was kind of just a, basically like a vanity thing to give Neil Adams a chance to draw Wolverine and Sabretooth and hope that people would buy it, I feel like. And everybody else was just stuck along for the ride. It was strange, and uh, it was it was weird because it felt rushed, and then also like forever to read all at once. Like I couldn't get through it, but it, it was like what six issues, maybe. Yeah, it was uh, it was not my favorite by any means. I didn't enjoy this read, and you messaged me during it, like, "What am I reading right now?" Um, there is a character named Yeti. I'm looking it up. There's a character named Yeti who's part of the Inhumans that shows up in Fantastic Four number 99. And he gets explored a little bit in that old Marvel, The Lost Generation series. Um, we're not going to go into that right now. But it's like, it's meant to be a series, another like pre-continuity series. Uh, um uh, that's set like in between like the monster era of Marvel, but before the Fantastic Four appear, that might also have been written by Roger Stern, if I'm thinking, but I haven't read that in years. It's been a long time. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I got to look it up. Uh, do you remember this team I'm talking about? It was like a Canadian team with like a big white Yeti guy on it. Yeah. Uh, when you said double strike, I kind of had the idea. Like, I think it oh, actually, I oh, was it X-Force after Liefeld left? Because X -Force. I think it was, like, it was Pinocian maybe drew it, and it was real, like, almost Liefeld-esque and, like, real sketchy. X-Force number 11. Uh, it's, it's, uh, he's, he's part of a team called Weapon Prime, and Prime's an acronym, P-R-I-M-E, which stands for Prototype Induced Mutant Echelon. And his teammates, his teammates include, uh, Kill Spree, Tiger Strike, and uh, Double Trouble, who are these creepy fucking, like, mutant twin girls. The 90th names ever. <laughs> uh, he also showed up in the North Star title. But yeah, it is not the same. It is not the same Yeti. Uh, anyway, random, random nerd discussion. We're not going to talk about Weapon Prime today. Um, I do like, the thing I like about this, if this is continuity, is we get to see Duncan as actively involved, not just passively involved, in fighting for mutant rights. Uh, like he's he's like a real go-getter here like uh, he's standing up against his director he's standing up against Bolivar Trask he's anti-sentinel uh, pro-mutant and uh, clearly does not like this virus guy very much but yeah it's a painful read I didn't enjoy it very much all right so this is something that I have no idea because I've never actually gone back and read it but where um, Xavier recruited like Vulcan and Petra and Sway in um, the, the X-Men Deadly Genesis series? Yeah. So they would have taken place after 
these X-Men. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that probably. So Xavier, we have it's it's hard because you have to put a lot of writer stories. So uh, X-Men Deadly Genesis is uh, is it Ed Brubaker. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is a series. So we know now because of Hickman that Xavier and Moira were plotting the whole time. Xavier recruited his X-Men. And then according to X-Men Deadly Genesis, Moira McTaggart had her own team of X-Men, which included Vulcan and Petra and Sway and Darwin. And then later when uh, the X-Men were captured by Krakoa, Xavier took Moira's team and sent them to Krakoa. And these characters were all seemingly killed. And he like erased the memories from everyone to keep it a secret. Then he re then he recruited the guys in X-Men giant size, right? This is when you stack all the continuity up. Uh, so I don't know exactly when that would have fit in. Uh, I, I kind of presume Moira recruited her team around the same time that Xavier recruited his uh, X-Men Deadly Genesis. Uh, if read it, it's a good read. Um, yeah, I've, I've actually know people do like it. Um, what I was going to ask you but is, I think this, they... I think this first X Men would have been prior to that. Oh, they're the first first X Men. So, <laughs> Moira's team were they not in the U.S.? Yeah, I think they were on Muir Island. Ah, uh, okay. So I was just curious if um, why you know why why Dunk wouldn't have been anywhere around that. Seth has been texting me like as we prep for this, and he keeps calling him Dunk, and I'm like, no. His name is not Dunk. <laughs> Poor guy. He didn't even get a nickname. He just got a middle name. He's like, he's got nothing. You got to give him something. Marvel. Uh, when I was working on the handbooks, one of the hardest jobs is Marvel loves to go back and tell stories. I just referenced Marvel: The Lost Generation. Uh, there's a series called, uh, or a limited series called X Men 19. I'm sorry, Avengers 1959, which has like Sabretooth and uh, Craven the Hunter. And some old characters like in a, in a Nick Fury led team of Avengers in the 50s. Uh, Jason Aaron now has like the Avengers from 1 million BC in the current run. Like you have to you have to stack all this together and it gets really tricky. because <laughs> It keeps changing uh, the, the origins. I don't know. Uh, anyway, that's basically all we have of uh, Fred Duncan. There is one uh, major revelation. It's off panel, but um, in Gambit Volume 3, number 22, Fabian Nicieza in the year 2000 uh, tells us that Duncan was involved in the Black Womb Project. We'll talk more about this another time, but Black Womb was like Mr. Sinister, Amanda Mueller, Moira McTaggart. And like the parents of Charles Xavier, like uh, Brian Xavier, and I think uh, Kurt Marco uh, involved in this like secret desert facility where like mutants were being experimented on. Toad is one of those mutants. Uh, and a lot of babies died. And we just don't have a lot of stuff about it. I kind of understand, or I'm getting hinted that in interviews that Kieran Gillen may be picking up that story in uh, in modern continuity where we get to learn more about this black womb stuff. But what we learned from Nicieza is that uh, Duncan was uh, was like opposed to this, but he was like an FBI liaison. Uh, and that's kind of all we get. And then the other, the other big thing, we learn off panel that he has been murdered. Uh, Duncan's dead. We don't know why, we don't know who, there's clearly an untold story here, but in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 17 in 1993 by Scott Lobdell, uh, we get to meet the Executioner, who is a favorite X-Men villain for some people. Uh, Seth, tell us about the Executioner. 
So I bought this one like from my pull list back in 93 because I'm old and I, I loved, loved the Arcanus Annual. So when you uh, put this in the list, I was so stoked to go back and reread it. And I really felt the art held up. I just thought it was so slick and fun and different than everybody else who was drawing at the time. It's like such heavy use of, of blacks and shadows and it just was great. And it was actually a really fun story because while it like the whole, well, I think the executioner's, he was a cover story, but really he's kind of like the B side of the story where it's yeah. really like the death of mastermind. Which and, I just, which I just had to read uh, ironically, not only for this podcast because of the the Duncan stuff but I also we're doing the trial of mastermind soon and so I, ha I had to read this issue twice uh and both stories hold up it's yeah it's pretty good oh it's a super discussable issue I mean you know that complete that's that plot line aside I think will be really great for your trial because it was really a, a great story and it was fun it, like it, it was kind of an unexpected annual it was really a, a stand like a standalone story but I, it, it fit great and was he dying of the like early legacy virus there? Yeah, yeah. And it's like the only human version of Mastermind we ever get. Like he actually shows a little bit of remorse. You see him like he's he's a terrible character, but he's great at this. But uh, but it also introduces the uh, the executioner. Yes. Yeah, so the executioner is on his way to murder Mastermind, correct? Like that, that was what was happening. And so he kills Tower first, which is another deep cut. I really enjoyed seeing him. Tower's and, another terrible villain. I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> he's so useless. He was just super useless. But you know, I, he he was a great one to just like just take out for a you know for a big opening scene. And the executioner is interesting. He's killing bad mutants, and he doesn't care who gets in the way. He's the Punisher of the mutant world, essentially. And you know, it's very fitting of the '90s. But I I, I liked his story, and I like him as a. I think he's an interesting character to throw into the mix. I love his costume. It's uh, it's unlike anything else in comics, which is saying something. It is so impractical. Why would you wear a giant like face scarf that goes down to your crotch that you can trip <laughs> over at any time? It just, that makes no sense at all. I think it's supposed to be reminiscent of like an executioner's hood, right? Uh, yeah, it's like a lot. It's a lot. Well, we learn in this story, it's kind of just casually mentioned, but this, this guy's name is Carl Denti, the executioner. He's a former FBI agent. And this is just kind of from his thoughts that we learn. He's trying to avenge the death of Fred Duncan. We literally know nothing about what his connection to Duncan is. We don't know how Duncan died, but this guy's out to kill mutants. Uh, and he's like targeting random people. We see him show up a few times in the 90s. We'll talk about the executioner another time. Uh, but Denti is using weapons. Uh, he's like a collection of weapons that are based on old X-Men villains. So he's got like alien tech and different weapons. And we learn in this issue from his thoughts that he found like a secret bunker that Duncan had been keeping X-Men villain weapons in. And he's now using these weapons that Duncan gathered against mutants. Uh, if that's true, why is Duncan keeping a secret like bunker of uh, of villain weaponry? Uh, we don't know anything about why this might have happened or what its purpose was uh, or how Denti found it or how Duncan died. Uh, this is an issue from like 32 years ago at this point. And there's still been really no follow-up, even though the executioners appeared a bunch of times since then. Uh, any thoughts on that? Why would Duncan be keeping secret weapons? don't know and it really felt like it was being set up to be so much more maybe just his character was getting kind of pitched in this and just didn't get the love that they were hoping he was going to get 
you know, maybe they were hoping for a new edgy kind of anti-villain or anti-hero. Um, he kind of felt like in between everything. And maybe he just didn't take the way that Marvel was hoping. And then his rest of the story just didn't get told. But I liked that they took the time to actually ground him in some history. So I thought that was pretty cool. A as a kid reading this, didn't know who Fred Duncan was or any of what that was. So it's kind of interesting just how little of an effect I mean, Fred Duncan had long term. This might be a question for Scott Lobdell, uh, who would be problematic to have on the podcast because of hashtag me too. There's been some allegations. Um, so he'd be, it'd be a tricky person to interview, but, uh, or editors from that time we could ask as well. But uh, it, it almost makes me wonder if these backup issues or these side issues that Dave Cockrum was drawing that became X-Men odd men out. It, it almost makes me wonder if those were meant to be used around here and they were planning to bring Fred Duncan back as some sort of player. Uh, I just don't have that information. But there's more to Duncan's story to uh, to be told clearly here. Um, the, uh, the other thing that's me worth mentioning very quickly, uh, there is a mention of Duncan in X-Men Forever number three in 2001, uh, where we learned that Mystique impersonated him one time. Uh, so when you stack all this stuff up together, it's interesting. Now, weirdly, Fred Duncan has the most exploration in a series that is an alternate universe. It's not part of continuity, and it's great. Uh, so in X-Men Children of the Atom, one through six, uh, we see uh, Joe Casey and Steve Rude. And I uh, we did a live script reading of this on the podcast after I interviewed Steve Rude, and it's it's great. But if yeah, you definitely. Really Good series, job on that, guys. You know, yeah. the, if, if anybody has listened to that, that was actually a, a surprisingly fun that sounds so negative. <laughs> what a surprise. It was good. No, it was, I, I don't really think of myself as a script reading kind of guy, but it was actually really fun to listen to. Everybody yeah, was, seemed to have so much fun. It was maybe the nerdiest thing I've ever done, but we had a great time with Steve Duda and Justin and Alicia Wilder. It was, it was a blast. Uh, Alicia Wilder's uh, voice for the Metzger guys <laughs> still cracks me up. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Duncan, Duncan gets a lot of characterization in this, but it's not considered canon. He's shown as like integrally involved in the formation of the X-Men. Uh, he works with Xavier all the way through it. Uh, it's a great read, but I'm just not going to take the time to go into extreme detail here because it's not continuity. Uh, where first X-Men does fit, this series doesn't. It shows all the X-Men going to the same high school. It like completely changes their origins, so it has to be an alternate universe. Uh, what did you think of Duncan and uh, X-Men Children of the Atom stuff? I mean, overall, I thought it was actually a really fun book. Duncan, you know, had a great part in it. And like you said, it was kind of the most personality that they tried to give him. I think it was written by, a, you know, a later writer and it's newer. And so it was pretty thoughtfully done. Um, you know, some... Some of it was a little, uh, you know, it felt very um, in the era of like trying to make it in with like the popularity of like a Buffy or something like that. Or like um, Dawson's Creek or something. Yeah. 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 So like it, it was interesting to read it back and now read it through like a current lens. And it, it, I bet it was like really, I probably would have loved it at the time. Right. And it, it was neat. Like I bet if they were trying to do um, like a plot pitch for an X-Men TV show, this would have been it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a good read. I, I enjoy it. And the art, uh, Steve Root's art in it is gorgeous. Uh, so that's Fred Duncan, who has a surprising amount of, of resonance, despite the minorness of this character. We've been talking about him for over an hour. Uh, what are your thoughts on this guy? Like, uh, if we sum him up, and then if you were to tell a Fred Duncan story now, what would the story be? Like, what, what, what remains to be explored? Uh, you know what? I really would have been curious about 
so Fred Duncan, I think, is an interesting untapped character. I think that he served as a, you know, just a, a utility for writers back in the 60s. And then eventually, like, you could see where he, he really actually mattered in, in the world that, like, really got built for the X-Men. And I really think would have been interesting to see, like, what he thought of, like, Freedom Force with Val Cooper being involved in the government. I would have been super curious, like, his opinion or how he was trying to either be pro or or against or even trying to undermine or, or you know, rewrite the way Freedom Force is formed. You know, I think that there's so many places that you don't get to see his perspective and it would have been interesting. Uh, I want to know how he died. And I definitely want to know about his connections to the executioner. Like we have a whole untapped, uh, untapped thing here where there's a lot that really could be explored uh, about his death and who he was. Uh, it's kind of like he was almost, it's almost like he was training uh, Denti to be his, uh, his like protege or something like, I feel like there's I feel like there's some stories to be told. And then because of his death, we then see him as um, uh, as a, a character who uh, who has potential in his ability to have legacy. I don't necessarily need to see him back in the comics, but I would I would enjoy like an annual that goes back and and like gives him gives us like one solid story that shows us why this guy was important. Uh, I mean, he matters to the story involving Professor X uh, and he matters to the story regarding the executioner. And then uh, I kind of want to toss first X-Men in a, in a, in a trash pile, <laughs> but, uh, but the rest of the rest of his story kind of weaving it together is, is really interesting. It'll be interesting to see if anybody um, picks up on that. Yeah. Um, and we uh, don't really, we don't know he's dead. That's true. Maybe Denti killed him. Maybe the executioner killed Fred and then went mad. Like there's there's some stories to be explored. There. Or maybe he's just following what Xavier did years ago that he's just learning from him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, and then this like secret cache of weapons. Fascinating. There's uh, there's some things to explore. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, Seth, let me let me just tell you, thank you for the gift of your time. And I know this took some prep work, uh, but I hope it was fun for you to go back and do this deep dive. Um uh, I love weaving this stuff together because uh, like I won't look at this character the same now. Uh, it's it's always fascinating to do these little uh, these little focus episodes. Um, in our next Patreon episode, we're going to be uh, focusing. I'm going to be focusing on the character Grotesque uh, with uh, with Steve Duda, uh, and I like Grotesque a lot actually. After after diving into this character, he's great. Uh, I'm actually really excited to talk about him. So come back and listen. Um, after that, I'm going to be doing uh, the character, the Changeling, with uh, with uh, George Michael Duvin. Uh, Changeling is another one, much like Duncan, who has never been given a ton of focus, but has a surprising amount of resonance for the X Men. Uh, so there's some really fun stuff coming up, and uh, I just booked the next couple episodes that are like six and seven and eight away, and I'm really pumped. We've got some cool stuff coming your way. Uh, Seth, where can people uh, find you online? We already talked about Mayor, but is there anything else uh, we can uh, look forward to coming out from you? No, um, I think just basically if you wanted to find me on Twitter at scmartel or sethchristianmartel.com, that would probably be the places that you'd be finding more things about eventually where to buy Mayor or other things that I'm up to. Uh, Seth is a close personal friend of mine at this point, and I don't have a lot of close personal friends, so I'm thrilled uh, to have you in my life, man. Seth is also doing uh, the the uh, trading card art for our episodes, uh, uh, repurposing kind of old art or drawing his own stuff. 
He's also drawing the characters for every trial that we do uh, with like Judge Chad on one side and the X-Men on the other. It's uh, it's wonderful. I'm a huge fan. Uh, and uh, thank you for for all of your talents, your investment into the podcast and uh, especially for your friendship. It's it's uh, it's wonderful to spend this time with you, man. Yeah, buddy. All right, everybody. We'll see you back here next time. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll uh, we'll I already said that, but see you next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>